Hello, I'm Jason Solomons and welcome to another edition of Seen Any Good Films Lately. On this podcast, I share some of the latest films and TV shows I've been watching and we catch up with one of Britain's most respected documentary makers and his film about this lady. There's a somebody I'm longing to see I hope that he turns out to be someone who'll watch over me. Yeah, that's Ella Fitzgerald and someone to watch over me. Well, watching over her is my guest today, Leslie Woodhead, whose film, Ella Fitzgerald, Just One of Those Things, plays at BFI Southbank as part of a season of films called Her Voice, about the impact of black female singers. Welcoming you all back to the cinema and award-winning dot maker, Leslie will be answering the famous sagful question. What a gorgeous film that was. I was open-mouthed, so I certainly fell in love with her and with that movie. So we'll hear much more from Leslie Woodhead and Ella Fitzgerald in a bit. So many lovely song snippets in today's show. I'm so excited. But first, I'm going to tell you if I've seen any good films lately. Because I have. I've seen some good ones lately, and some of them in the cinema. Yep, the movies are back where they belong, and... Boy, does it make a difference. And I'm very pleased to report that it does, because I've been watching films at home on the telly, and yeah, you you get some idea of whether it's good, but I was at the French Institute last Monday, the Cine Lumière, which was the big reopening day, and I had the pleasure of hosting a QA and a with Oscar winner Christopher Hampton and legendary production designer Peter Francis after seeing The Father on the big screen there in the Cine Lumière. Oh, you notice every tick on the big screen, every little uh, facial expression in Anthony Hopkins's Oscar-winning performance, every glint in the old boy's eye, and every flicker of rage too. And this time, having seen it on my telly, I really noticed Olivia Coleman's performance, and she should have won the awards for this. It's a great supporting performance as the daughter, who's suffering as much as the old man. Uh, with this dementia, her eyes glistening with pain and love. It's a magnificent duo, the two of them sort of play out together. But you also, on the big screen, you notice the paintings and you notice the textures of the, the fabrics and the leathers and you notice the clothes and all the changes in the furnishings and the light that are such a huge part of this brilliant film. Honestly, I think it should have been the best film. And it will be a classic of a certain kind. I mean, unique as it is, I think it will go down as a classic. It's so simple and yet so honest and so searing. And yet it's also complex with emotions and full of subtle shifts. Oh, The Father is tremendous. It's out on June the 11th in the cinemas. Look out for Christopher Hampton on the show soon. Hopefully he'll have his Oscar in his possession by then. He told me Monday night that it hadn't arrived yet, even though they told him it would be seven to ten working days before it got here, but it's still not there. Um, But uh, he will be on the show very soon, and Sir Christopher is is a magnificent sort of uh, playwright, film writer, and filmmaker, so I'm looking forward to hearing his sagful answers. I also saw... A Quiet Place 2, or AQP2, as it's known. 
uh, it was one of the first films to be cancelled in the pandemic. You know, think back to 14 months ago on. Uh, and rather suitably for an apocalyptic type movie, it had its posters up in the deserted tube stations for months. And if you were to pick this one now to herald your grand return to cinemas, I think you'd be more than happy with A Quiet Place too. Emily Blunt is back with her crying baby now in a soundproof box so as not to attract the ears of these invading aliens. So there's a very good little flashback sequence right at the start of this to fill us in with what's happened. Uh, and now Emily and her family, minus John Krasinski, who was in the first one, but he's now just writing and directing this second one. He, uh, she's trying to survive and find other survivors. There's Killian Murphy lurking somewhere, hidden in an old factory, hiding in rusting furnaces. But this film really belongs to the hearing-impaired daughter, Regan, played by Millicent Simmons, who discovers how to make the aliens scream using Bobby Darren and a loudspeaker. Stands on golden sand and watches the ships that go sail. Look, I think A Quiet Place 2 is perfect to watch with others at the cinema. People will jump and they will gulp and they will scream and you'll feel the tension and you'll have a very good time in the dark. So that's what it's all about. I think it's a perfect film to test what you've missed by not being with others when you watch films like this. There's also a hint in this film that it touches where we all are after the storm of COVID. We're altered and wary and on edge and mistrustful of each other in some way. It's out on June the 4th in the UK. And do you know what? I think it could well prove the runaway hit of the post-COVID summer. Just one of those nights Just one of those fabulous flights A trip to the moon on gossamer wings Just one of those things Time for perfection, then. That's what I think when I think of Ella Fitzgerald. And she's the subject of the documentary Just One of Those Things, directed by my guest Leslie Woodhead. Leslie's a British doc-making doyen. He's been awarded an OBE for services to television, and in 1986 he won the BAFTA for Outstanding Creative Contribution to Television. He'd edited World in Action, and he's made films on Lockerbie, The Rolling Stones, Free Concert, 9-11, Ethiopian Endurance Runners, Polish Dock Strikes, Soviet Invasions, The Srebrenica Massacre, Chinese Farmers, Nomads in Nigeria, Diana's Death and The Beatles in Russia. At 84, the guy is a pioneer and a consummate pro, mixing drama and archive with first-hand witness testimony. And he's known for his painstaking questioning and assembling the real picture of what happened. And now he's turned his lifelong jazz passion into work, and he's put together a portrait of the First Lady of Swing, the Queen of Jazz, Ella Fitzgerald. This new girl called Ella Fitzgerald. She wasn't dazzling them with the dress she was wearing. She did it with her voice. It don't mean a thing. 
Ella was doing something that hadn't been done before. My mother had God-given talent. Artists like Ella fought that fight to break down those barriers. People truly loved her. She was Ella. I caught up with Leslie as he prepared to face the sagful questions, and I began by asking him if the life of Ella Fitzgerald had previously been documented. No, there's there's almost nothing. There's one PBS documentary from a little while ago, um, which um, just really does the greatest hits. But there's never been um, any attempts to really get inside Ella or understand what moved her. And I think that's because she's not an easy person to make a film about. Um, she's very private. She's very uh, understated. She just sings. <laughs> and uh, that's it. And making a film about that seems forbidding. It was only after I'd spent a lot of time with the witnesses and, when, and the archive that it lit up for me as, as being an extraordinary story. It must have been wonderful as a fan to, to put something together like this, to delve into that wonderful uh, Harlem Renaissance, which you, you so evocatively uh, recreate using archive and the testimonies of, uh, of Talking Heads. It must have been real fun. It was a joy, you're right. I mean, I was amazed at how much archive there was of that uh, luscious period. Um, but fortunately, there was quite a bit. And um, it, it recaptured it for me very vividly, that archive. So we gorged on it <laughs> as much as possible. I don't blame you. No, it looked, it looked wonderful. Did, I mean, is it, is it available here or is it particularly you need to go to the US to do it, to the, to the black libraries? Yeah, that's what we did. I mean, it was a, a kind of a year-long archive trawl to get um, all of this stuff together. And a lot of it is indeed, as you suggest, in the black libraries or in the Smithsonian Jazz Center or, mm. you know, the, some usual places and some um, remote places. Fortunately, I had a very good archive hunter, so he tracked it down for me. What was your intro to Ella Fitzgerald? Why has she always been just one of those things for you? Well, it's uh, how long have you got? <laughs> uh, my my father was a professional musician in the 1920s and 30s. And after the war, he and his mom opened a, a record store in Yorkshire, in Halifax, Yorkshire. And um, I fell in love with jazz through the, the album, well, first of all, the 78s, and then eventually the album, albums they had on their shelves. And um, that was, that was a, I mean, I got lucky there. I was sitting in a, a treasure trove with all of that material. I mean, which most of which I, I have to confess I stole. <laughs> it's a, it, like a child in a sweet shop there. You know, Absolutely. I'm going to take you back quite far in time, Leslie. Forgive me if I, I, I don't mean to be rude, but you're 84 now, is that right? 83. 83. So you just push me. Push me on a year. Well done. You've, you, you've chalked up another run in my book. Um, well, do you remember the first film you saw at the cinema? I do, oddly enough. It's, uh, it's quite um, engraved in me, although I was only four years of age, and it was The Wizard of Oz. Oh, yeah. And I remember it particularly because I was so scared by the witch 
that my mother had to, I started yelling and my mother had to carry me out of the cinema because <laughs> everybody was getting fed up about this um, yelling child um, in, the, in the movie house. So, um, <laughs> do, you remember so that, which, do you remember where it was, which movie house? Yeah, it was in Glasgow, which is where I was growing up. I can't remember its name, but it was, uh, it was an okay, nothing in particular cinema. But of course... The Wizard of Oz. I think it was a, you know, a brand new film at the time. Well, it was made in 1939, wasn't it? 39, I thought. Yeah, you were two. I was two then, but it wouldn't have reached Glasgow until the early 40s. Yeah. So it was pretty hot off the press when I when I saw it, and uh, um, my parents obviously thought I ought really to see this, especially it was a sort of childhood fantasy movie but uh, it scared the wits out of me <laughs> so so i wasn't the ideal and uh, uh, it's that's why it's it's sealed in my memory have you since uh, seen the end of it in case you just don't know what happens oh so yeah i have to spoil yeah, it for you yeah, yeah no I've, I've i've sampled the i've seen the whole thing and uh, i was always fascinated about by it actually because it comes at a point in well american social history um which is um which is a um, always intrigued me i mean that period just before world war Two and into world war Two. it's it, it's it's fascinating that uh, that that film sort of cut through as it did and i guess for many people it's themes of going home to wherever she was from, Kansas. That's right. And all of that was very resonant once the war had started. Yeah, of course. Uh, and the colour of it, all the sort of, yeah, the colour and the, the mystery. It's amazing to have someone on the show who's seen it, the first run, Wizard of yeah. Oz, and I think that's terrific. But I, that's why I checked that you'd seen the end of it, because not that long ago I was talking, you know, we had a dinner party and I was talking about, and I, and I said something, oh, it's just like in the Wizard of Oz when, you know, you pull back the curtain and it's just a little old man, you know, that, the, the, yes, the smoke yes. and, mirrors. and a, a woman at the party said what what do you mean and i said well you know the wizard of oz you know it's just the wizard working it she went what do you mean i didn't what what and i said well denise you must know the wizard of oz she says well you know but i've always been so scared of the flying monkeys <laughs> I, I, i've never got past that bit i always turn off or run away from the screen that bit she'd never seen the ending so she didn't know about the wizard behind the curtain that, that is fascinating well she she uh, duplicated my childhood uh, fears <laughs> of the film the witch is quite scary actually there's no question about it oh, definitely. but uh, fasc fascinated that you uh, you uh, met up with somebody else who had the same had she seen it when she was a child? She's had, and I think it had scared her ever since. Whenever it had been on the telly, you know, 150 times, the flying monkeys and the witch, <laughs> with her pointy, bony, green fingers. That's always scared right. Her so much she'd never come back. So you're not alone. <laughs> you're not alone I, in I that. thought it. I thought it was just me being a wuss. As no, a well, we, and also as a film critic, you don't want to give away spoilers. And I, I, you know, pulling back the curtain to reveal the little old man, I never, I thought was a sort of well acknowledged sort of literary trait rather than a spoiler. Yeah. Like this, I shocked her with this kind of news. So her world had literally changed that night when she found out the spoilers <laughs> to The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a period in in cinema I'm really interested in because well, thirty nine is the most extraordinary year. Um, on the on the verge of war, um, there are several. I mean, I'm trying to remember what I think. It's hailed stagecoach. as the greatest year stagecoach. Um, I think yeah. Gone with the Wind is 1939. That's right, Gone with the Wind. My God, what a year! 
and that's Hollywood in its prime at that point. I mean, really extraordinary with that luscious Technicolor. Um, it's um, it's it's an astonishing year. While well, well, America wasn't yet in the war, but it was on the verge of it. You, you went on to have a fantastic career in in TV and TV documentary making, uh, especially at, at Granada and World and Action, but also your, the, the the films that you've made afterwards. Uh, how, how far is cinema an in, an influence on on what you then did, or was it very much separate to you? Because documentaries in 1939 were not what they were when when you got hold of them. No, they were not. They were pretty. Uh... They were pretty stiff and, yes. and limited, limited by the technology, actually. No, for me, um, of course, I watched the movies of my time when I began to work in television. And that was a pretty rich time for movies with the, uh, the, the, uh, the 60s and 70s. It's one of the, one of the richest times. But, for, I mean, I, I also remember um, the most influential film I saw um, in terms of my documentary experience, um, a, a man came to Granada to show us a new a, a new film he'd been involved with. I'll never forgotten it. It's a, a film that you may never have heard of and certainly not have seen about John Kennedy's first electoral effort, and it's called Primary. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, and it's in the, I think, the Wisconsin primary election leading up to um, uh, the election at that time. Now, what's interesting about primary and what hypnotized and really did change my life was that it was an early effort of cinema, American cinema verite. Mm. And then uh, the guy who brought it to show us at Granada had been one of the cameramen on primary. And I was completely blown away by the film. I mean, if you're um, still fighting your way for a, a sense of what documentary might be, and if you've been familiar with the fairly clunky things that are being done in the 50s and 60s, this was it's astonishing. The film was made by a famous documentarian, uh, D.A. Pennybaker. Yes, it was one of his, uh, uh, one of his sort of you know, touchstone, st- touchstone films for many documentary that- students. Yeah, and he's a man who went on to make music docs like Monterey and 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 many and don't look back with with Bob Dylan. So yeah. I met uh, Penny Baker before he died. He was a sweet man, and he still had the camera with which he shot uh, Primary on a shelf in his chaotic office. <laughs> and, uh, for me, it was like a a holy relic seeing this thing. What they did, um, Penny and his friends, was to actually make their own camera. They were frustrated by the fact that while you could wander around with the camera, you couldn't get synchronized sound. So they set about making a camera that would allow them to shoot visuals and record synchronized sound, Yes, which they successfully managed to do. And it transformed everything about documentaries, basically, and became... Uh, the the kind of template for everything I've done sen- since. That's extraordinary. I know I know Jean Luc Godard was a big fan, of, a big fan of Primary. So you're not you're not alone in that one. And Penna Baker, of course, is the one that did the famous sequence of Bob Dylan with the with the subterranean homesick blues, isn't it? With the that's, cards. That's you know. right. With the with the cards. Yeah, in a back alley, I think in Soho in yes. London. But uh, oh, that's thrilling that you. Uh, that you're aware of primary. Yes, I've never um, seen it, I have to say, but to have... Oh, it, it, I mean, it, maybe you need a sense of 
how remarkable it is to fully enjoy it. I mean, watching the camera um, track behind um, Kennedy and then he gets into a car and the camera goes with him into the car and he gets out of the car and the camera follows him out of the car and into a big meeting. I mean, never had I seen anything like that or considered it remotely possible. So that was a, a life changer for me. It's a great dream, the dream of becoming president of the United States. This is the story of the primary process as it is fought in any important state in any election year, but seen close up as has never before been captured by the camera. The names could be Taft, Wilkie, Kefauver. This happens to be 1960, Wisconsin. Senator Hubert Humphrey of Minnesota against Massachusetts Senator John F. Kennedy. I don't know if you were a film fan. Or did you have film posters on your wall? I did, I did. I can't for the life in me remember what they were at that time. Later on, when I became a, a filmmaker, I'm afraid that with all due vanity, a lot of them were posters for my film. Why not? Absolutely. Do you, do you still have yeah. them up now in your, where you are? Yeah. I made a strange and, and uh, one of the things I most uh, remember in my years of filmmaking is a film I, I was asked to make by the great um, movie maker Terence Malick, mm. uh, who had found some of my disappearing world films for some reason in the Smithsonian reason, uh, Museum. I didn't even know they were in the Smithsonian. <laughs> anyway, Terry saw a couple of things and uh, got in touch. He wanted to make a film about a great African runner. Uh, and uh, so I thought that's what he wanted me to help with. But then to my startlement, he sent his producer to London and he suddenly, ne I nearly fell on the floor. He said, Terry would like you to consider making this film. And I thought, bloody hell, how extraordinary. And uh, he, Terry wanted to shoot it on 70 mil. Yes. Uh, and all of which, which was a daunting challenge, taking 70 mil into the African bush. But so, because we made a film with a great African runner called Heidi Geber Selassie, who won the gold medal at the Atlanta um, Olympic. So we went with Heidi uh, back to his home village in the Rift Valley and, uh, to a degree, um, reconstructed. I mean, his, his nephew played him when he was young. Heidi played himself when he was uh, a teenager onwards. His family all played uh, bits of themselves. So it was some kind of drama doc made uh, on location um, shot by the great cinematographer Ivan Strasberg, and it went on forever. Well, it was called Endurance, um, wasn't it? It was called Endurance, <laughs> indeed it was. Um, and, uh, I mean, I, I, had, I think I went back to L.A. to work on the edit uh, with Terry and without Terry, oh, six or eight times. He would never let it go. It just rolled on This and must on have been the on. period, Leslie, when Terry was, Terence Malick was a sort of famous recluse that no one had seen him and he hadn't made films for ages and everyone was waiting for him you know, between Days of Heaven and The Thin Red Line. I think there was like the 30 years of reclusive Terence Malick. No one could ever find him. And there he was with you sitting in a, in a, in a edit room. I know, it's completely true, um, Jason. You, you are entirely right. He was uh, coming to the end of his long, 
long, quiet period, we kind of hit it off. And I think for a while, I was one of the few people on earth who had his home phone number. <laughs> what he used to do, though, was to say, ring me, I'll be in this phone box, which was, um, he lived near Austin, Texas. And he was, he was indeed astonishingly hard to to, to, uh, to track down. I mean, I worked with him editing Endurance in uh, in Hollywood, and he was then cutting Thin Red Line, and he had obviously an office and a cutting room. He didn't even have his name on the door. He just didn't want anybody to break in on him. Which did was did some... you ever ask him why that was? Because I've never quite understood. I mean, it's great to disappear and whatever and have an artistic crisis, or was, was he just too popular? Was he you know, seen as the, the poet saviour of cinema? I couldn't understand why. He was, he would... seen, as, he was seen as the poet saviour, and I fancy saw himself as a poet saviour. He was a fairly... Uh, extraordinary person i think that what happened he had first of all he did he did those two amazing films ending, ending with days of heaven mm, bad times and then days of heaven yeah, yeah bad yeah an amazing pair of uh, films uh, which had always been my favorite so when i heard that he wanted to uh, work with me i was blown away i don't blame you uh, <laughs> No, it was it was really quite an extra. This was in 1990, some point. Anyway, um, you're right. He had been uh, dormant for oh, 25 years and more, and um, uh, I think one of the things that happened. First of all, someone who was a huge admirer had paid an enormous amount of money to to uh, preserve his integrity and not make anything else. So that must have got in the way. But also, he had endless aborted projects that he wanted to do that never never worked out never came to anything which were all increasingly uncommercial mm. i can't imagine anyone in hollywood having wanted to do his strange obsessive movies but finally thin red line did happen and and worked since when there have been some very odd things indeed um, <laughs> that he's done. I've talked to him a number of times, but he's a, an elusive person, to put it mildly. Yeah. But that was a great, that was a great experience. Oh, it was a wonderful, wonderful story. Great, great to talk to, to you uh, about that. If you could go back in time to any film set being made, a, a production, you could visit it for a day, or you could spend the whole of the, the shoot there, or you, you you know you could just you could just pop in for a for a famous scene being shot. Is there a, a set that you'd like to visit? I reckon it's it might surprise you a bit, but it's Singing in the Rain. Oh, wonderful! What choice? One of my all-time favourite movies. It's lit up with joy and mischief, wonderful musical numbers, and the marvellous Gene Kelly at the top of his game. So I would love to have popped into that with Donald O'Connor and uh, Debbie Reynolds. Mm. Um, I think if, if I, I would, I, if if I was going to say, uh, the day they made the Make Him Laugh, uh, when he's yeah, walking up the walls that, and jumping that off. That is astounding, yeah. Um, I, if it was a day, it may have taken four days to shoot. <laughs> yes. But uh, apparently, the actual singing in the rain number um, took three days and, and 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 a half to shoot. And by the end of it, Gene Kelly had a terrible cold because he'd been wet the whole t- <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> time. Thing. But the, I mean, for me, that's the. I mean the the delicious um, high night, high moment of, of the Hollywood I love. So I'd, I'd be thrilled to have gone back to that. Right in the middle. Uh-uh. 
Short people have long faces, and long people have short faces. Big people have little humor, and little people have no humor at all. <laughs> and in the words of that immortal bard, Samuel J. Snodgrass, as he was about to be led to the guillotine, make them laugh, make them laugh. Don't you know everyone wants to laugh? <laughs> my dad said, be an actor, my son, but be a comical one. Who's your favourite screen hero and who's your favourite screen villain? I don't tend to deal in heroes and villains, actually. Um, um, my, uh, do you mean a fictional figure? Well, I mean, my favourite, um, this is an odd hero, um, is Woody Allen. <laughs> uh, One of uh, mine uh, too, uh, or was until very recently. Yeah, well, I know what you mean. Um, I loved, uh, loved Manhattan, which... Um, which um, captured the New York I adore and is funny and touching and moving and glorious to look at in luscious black and white. So um, he's my screen hero, or wasn't, as you say, until <laughs> recently. Until recently. Um, well, much of the anger is directed towards that film, Manhattan. Look, you're you're of an age where I'm sure you don't sort of cancel people because of you know what popular no, culture no, I, decides. I tend, I, tend, I tend not to do that um, uh, because few of us would escape cancellation um, <laughs> if the truth was known about the, the less happy moments of our lives. So, no, I I, I mean, I I never got to the bottom of just how much substance there was in the stuff about Woody Allen, um, who will know. For me, he's a guy who made a string of the most wonderful films. Well, me too. And also, I mean, as we're talking about Ella Fitzgerald, I think I said to you that one of my introductions to jazz was was Ella singing every time to say goodbye. But the yeah. other introduction to jazz is listening to, is watching Woody Allen movies and then following up with every time he put down a, laid down a brilliant Gershwin track in, in Manhattan, for example, following those up. Oh, what about that opening sequence? Oh, the uh, best ever. Rhapsody, Rhapsody in Blue. It's, um, yeah, I mean, he is, um, well, for me, he's he's something special. I'm sorry he rather blotted his uh, copybook, but there we are. Yeah, we can still love those movies. I think you're right. There's a, a run of movies that are just extraordinary. Radio Days is is my sort of cherished Oh, I love favorite. Radio Days. It's absolutely um, I, I, I'm glad you you mentioned that because I think it's a sublime film and and you could hug yourself watching radio uh, days. I also actually loved Stardust Memories, um, which is a peculiar, very Woody, Woody Allen movie. Yeah, but, I don't um, blame him. When I, I had my, I wrote a book about him called Woody Allen Film by Film, and we had the launch party at the uh, Picture House, the, the, the new one, oh, the, yeah. the, the Picture House Central in the, in in London, uh, and they said to me, "Well, you can show a film, you know, to the audience. You know, you have to come and see your book signing, and then you know, can we'll give you a screen and you can show a film." Yeah. And I picked Star us memories to show because i thought no one would have really seen that one it was an odd one um and i and i put that one on so yes i i, I also have a, a soft spot for that one and fantastic music in that one with the oh, with stardust playing throughout it yeah it's um I, I have a very i mean i've seen i think virtually every one of, of of woody allen's films but that one stuck in my memory for various reasons um and uh I've had an enormous fondness of it. Yeah, for it. Um, 
have you got a favourite cinema somewhere? Or, or if not a favourite cinema, the one that, 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 that cherishes all of them, but what may be the best screening that you've ever been to? When I finished my film about the Ethiopian runner, uh, Endurance, uh, it was to be previewed at Telluride at the film festival. There. I know it. Uh, so off I went to Telluride, and to my, um, to my joy, they screened it out of doors on a huge screen just as the moon was coming up behind the screen. So, I mean, that's not something I shall quickly forget. Um, Lovely. It, it, I mean, out of doors, um, moon, endurance, and I'm happy to say a, um, a favourable audience. That was quite something. Well, that sounds breathtaking as well, especially when you know, it sort of suits the subject matter as well, with the, sort of the, 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 great, the great open spaces of the Rift Valley uh, matching with, that, with Telluride there. You must, yeah, be, you must be proud of that one. Have you been to uh, Telluride? I haven't. I've never managed to go to Telluride. I'm always going to Venice uh, at that time of year and then and then Toronto, but I've never managed the, the boutique privacy of the Telluride Film Festival. Well, uh, it was go- it's a gorgeous little town, but it's um, 11,000 feet up, so you don't want to suffer from vertigo. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, of course, everybody gets there. I found myself um, standing next to Clint Eastwood and... Um, um, Klaus Maria Brandau in the in the queue. I mean, queuing up for their snack. So that I was pretty starstruck by that. I have to say. Yeah, I do. I do love that we can still get starstruck. I mean, that sounds like an amazing location. But have you got a favourite film location that either you've seen on screen, immortalised there, and or or one that yeah. you've shot in yourself, having been so many places in the world to shoot? Well, I have um, a, a particular thing, and over the years, from the early seventies onwards. I've made a series of documentaries with a group of uh, cattle herders in southern Ethiopia um, called the Morsi. They live in a, in a, in a really tough place on the bottom right-hand corner of Ethiopia, um, hundreds of miles really from anywhere. I've, I've been really fascinated by trying to film these guys who don't really have a, gr- a grip of what I'm doing. Why would they? Um, and uh, so they've they've happily they've indulged us as we poked a camera at them on I think seven occasions I've been back to film with them, which is like a huge serial of of their um, their problems and joys and disappointments. Have, have they seen the results, Leslie? Well, that's a good question. In uh, in the mid eighties, we worked out a way of taking. A, a little TV set and a, and a car battery and screening, <laughs> screening from a cassette for them in a forest clearing, which was something really I will never forget because these people, of course, had never seen a movie and didn't know what it could be. But there was um, open-mouthed astonishment. The anthropologist I was with said, people are going to find this really disturbing because there are people now dead who are in 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 the film mm. and uh, he, so he he made an introduction saying please don't be upset you will see um friends and and and, and, and parents um uh, walking in the screen but but it's okay uh, and if you want to get up and go please do some people did but most people stayed 
and it was fascinating afterwards hearing what they what they said and my favorite comment was from one of the tribesmen who said what's it for you can't eat it and you can't tie your bull up with it which seemed which seemed to take care of my entire filmmaking career in one short sentence. Yes, and mine and watching them as well. I thought, what have we done it all for? I cannot tie my bullet exactly. with anything that I've se- uh, that I've seen. <laughs> well, you know that is the practicalities. You know, they must have had the same wonder that those people who saw the the train arriving at La, La Ciotta Station that the, the rat thought it was coming out. Yeah. That did occur to me, actually. They would be thinking that the train was going to run over them. Um, I've never forgotten that image either. Now, I think their feeling must have been something like that. But, of course, they had even less grasp on what it could be, never having seen um, anything uh, reflecting their own lives like that. Um, anyway, I, I kept on revisiting the Morsi, as I said, seven times. Yeah. And it, and one of the reasons why I was very happy to make the film in Ethiopia um, for, with Terry Malik because that it was a place I knew how to operate, so that helped a lot. Yeah, wonderful to be able to preserve it and, and look back on it. Uh, Leslie, it's not not been easy to get out somewhere like Ethiopia at the moment. I shouldn't imagine. Or uh... Uh, it's it's not in great shape right now, no. actually, um, which saddens me a great deal. Uh, as it's a place I obviously care about. Yeah, absolutely. Have you ever have you ever fallen in love at the movies, Leslie Woodhead? One of my favourite films, which has got one of my favourite uh, women in it, is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Um, Catherine Ross in that is, I think, just gorgeous and sublime. Yes. Oh, she's wonderful. Um, uh, how she put up with those two prats, I do, I do not. <laughs> Riding around on a bike. <laughs> yeah, that's so extraordinary. Have you ever heard the? Uh, um, a, a friend of mine told me about a thoroughly Marxist analysis of Butch Cassidy, and that it's about the coming of industrialization to uh, to to a, an agrarian society, um, and the bewilderment that that's producing. You know, the, the liners they are pursued always saying, who are those guys? Yeah. Who are those guys? Um, and uh, the bike fits into that notion as well as being a new piece of technology. Replacing anyway, the horse, I suppose. It's, yeah, yeah it's, uh, it was widely and skillfully developed by, by a Marxist critic, this, this, this uh, reading of Butch Cassidy. God knows if it means anything, but there you go. <laughs> well, you can't tie, tie your bull up with it, but it's an well, interesting you theory. <laughs> you certainly can't. She was absolutely beautiful in uh, oh, Catherine Ross. And... What happened to her? Well, she married Sam Elliott, the the, 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 the sort of oh, cowboy right. who was on there, and I think there were many other people after her, and he married her. I interviewed him once. He played the dude in The Big Lebowski by the Coen brothers. Oh, right. So he's sort of well-known, sort of cowboy-looking thing. And I, I sort of said to him at the end, you know, really, you know, congratulations on on marrying Catherine Ross and he said my greatest achievement <laughs> <laughs> I love it no she's just seriously gorgeous and uh, the way in which she handled um, Butch and, and Sundance was pretty thrilling actually she managed to handle them without ever being deluded by them or swamped by them she wore the, uh, wore the trousers in that uh, in that relationship in a way absolutely what a gorgeous film that was. I was open-mouthed, so I certainly fell in love with her and with that movie. 
well, I don't blame you. A very, a very good choice. She was in The Graduate as well, of course, with the running running away with the Dustin Hoffman there as Elaine. That's in the right. Graduate. Yeah, br- briefly, but she was. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, I think the 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 the, the look she had in in, in Butch Cassidy is is a, is a wonderful person to have fallen in love with. An excellent choice, Leslie Woodhead, as all of yours have been. Thank you so much for joining me on seeing any good films lately. I think it's been a wonderful talking to you. Congratulations on Ella Fitzgerald, uh, or just one of those things, which I, I you know I just thoroughly enjoyed every every note and every shot of it. So that's uh, that's uh, let's put that on the poster. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jason. I enjoyed every minute of it. Real pleasure. Thanks a lot. I really enjoyed talking to Leslie Woodhead. Some lovely answers there and brilliant memories uh, of a fabulous career. And he's given us a lovely film, which you can see at BFI Southbank as part of Her Voice, Black Women from the Spotlight to the Screen, which has got films with Whitney Houston, Beyonce, Diana Ross... Tina Turner, Billie Holiday, Betty Carter, Aretha, she's in there, Josephine Baker, and of course, Ella. Just check bfi.org.uk for screening times and screening dates. It'll be like going to see Ella in an intimate setting, in a jazz club style. And the big interview on Seen Any Good Films Lately is supported by Strike, that's S-T-R-Y-K-K, the distilled drink with all the spirit, none of the alcohol perfect to sit with Ella and her jazz. Maybe a not-gin-based cocktail like a Southside with strike not-gin, lime juice, a mint sprig, mint leaf, syrup, all shaken over ice and poured out into a martini glass. You lucky Sagful listeners can still get 40% off your order. Just go to strike.com, enter the voucher code JASON40, 40% off. Cheers, Strike! There is just time to tell you of other stuff I've seen lately. He wears the finest clothes, the best designers, heaven knows. Ooh, from his head down to his toes. Austin, Gucci, Fiarucci. He looks like a deer. That man is dressed to kill. Oh, what's wrong? He's the greatest that's all. I'm really enjoying Ewan McGregor as Halston in the Netflix series. All the campy fun of yet another Ryan Murphy production. This time capturing the heady 70s of New York and the rise and fall of the fashion designer Halston. All that sex and drugs and Liza Minnelli. It's very nicely done and self-indulgent, I have to say. I watched a bit of Kate Winslet in Mayor of Easttown and I can't say I was gripped by the first episode. I felt I'd seen all this blue collar, blue filter town, dowdy cop stuff before. But everyone is telling me how great Kate is in it and I do like a bit of Kate Winslet so I may go back in to Mayor of Easttown. However, right now I'm dedicated to the Underground Railroad. It's by Moonlight director Barry Jenkins and tells the story of runaway slaves Caesar and Cora, played by Aaron Pierre and uh, Thus Mubedu. And there's a slave catcher on their tail, played by Joel Edgerton. It's superb stuff. Some of it looks a bit sickly cliched until Barry Jenkins turns that southern beauty or the Spanish moss hanging from the trees into brutality and he flips it with tension. And there are fabulous looking sequences that are all stunningly shot, but leave you ultimately aghast. 
It's old ground made to feel startlingly fresh and strange and new and vital and important. And that's how it should be. I I think this is surely destined to be one of the great TV shows, uh, one of the most important, certainly. I suppose in the way that Roots dominated and was one of the first things that everyone talked about. But I think this is now in a a different time and a different era of conversation. But it looks like it's going to endure and you know, of all the filmed works about slavery and the founding of modern America and the racist institutions and inequities, I think the Underground Railroad is going to be a key, key text. It's just brilliant to look at as well. It's inventive in its format. You know, is it TV? Is it film? It's got all of those techniques in there. I simply cannot wait to watch more. So Jason's three to see this week must be the Underground Railroad. There are 10 episodes. You can't really binge them all because there's just sort of too much to digest after each episode. But the Underground Railroad, dedicate to it. It's worth the time. Ella Fitzgerald, just one of those things. If you can't get to BFI Southbank to see it, it is on iPlayer and on Amazon, I think. And if it's previewing or out where you are, A Quiet Place too. I would say, is a real must-see. If not, if you don't fancy the cinema, well, give Holston a whirl. That's it for today. Thanks to Leslie Woodhead for his sagful answers and for all that Ella Fitzgerald stuff. Thanks to Strike, S-T-R-Y-K-K, for all the spirit, none of the alcohol. And thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to tell your friends, to share and subscribe and to rate us because that really helps other people find us. And let me know what you're watching too by emailing sagful at jasonsolomons.com. If you want to hear more of Leslie and Ella, there's my Totally Wired radio show from a week ago where the first hour was all Ella and a bit of Leslie, of course. Uh, There were the early songs through to the bebop, the ballads and beyond to the scat and the serenades. You can always hear my Totally Wired radio show, The Jason Solomon Show, live every Wednesday, 12 till 2, or catch up on the Totally Wired radio site or on Mixcloud. I'll be back here with you on Seen Any Good Films lately next week, of course, with more cinema news and reviews and some brilliant guests. But I think the last words today should be those of Ella and Cole Porter again, because they're better at saying goodbye than I. major to minor every time